Good morning, dear church. <clears throat> so thankful for our time together this morning. <clears throat> Maybe I say this too often, but thank you again to the praise team for serving the body of Christ by leading us to the throne room of God and granting us this joy of praising and singing out to Him with such reverence, uh, with integrity, biblical fidelity, and also just much joy and passion in Christ. I mean, that refrain of the church of God, be saved and sin no more, I could have sang that for 30 minutes. That thought that one day we'll be saved and glorified and we'll sin no more. We will literally uh, be done with sin. That battle that we're waging every day will be done with. And without any hindrance, we'll worship God forever. What a lofty, transcendent truth that we're able to uh, focus our minds on this morning. And that lifted our hearts, lifted my heart, and we thank you for your ministry. Your whole praise team, thank you, Frank, for um, just ministering us and just all the work you do behind the scenes as part of the praise team. Before we get to the message, I want to uh, make a special note of a special guest that are here with us this morning. We have the... Uh, Peter Smith and his family joining us uh, from the Czech Republic. They're um, joining us uh, next week as, weekend as well. They're here for their whole retreat. And Peter will be uh, ministering God's word to us um, on one, uh, one of the sessions. This sermon will be encourage one another um, as we have been encouraged by Christ. And Peter and his family have been such a source of encouragement to us. We partnered with them in the gospel in the Czech Republic. Uh, we've sent just numerous uh, members of our church to minister alongside them, and they've come back encouraged. You know? They've come back just blessed. And, and what happens in our church if you get chosen to be a member of the team, the body responds by saying congratulations because you're going to be very encouraged and blessed with time with them and ministering alongside them in the gospel. If you have been, either summer, winter, or short term, if you have had the privilege of uh, ministering overseas in the Czech Republic with the Smiths. Uh, can I see a show of hands? You know, lift them high. Well, I lift them really high. Okay, let's see. And let's sing. <laughs> um, wow, so many of you. So blessed. If you do not know them, please uh, make it a point during our break time or after service, during communion, to uh, personally welcome them in Christ. Peter, Sonia, Joshua, Catherine, Daniel, and Matthew. If you can stand up and we'll give you a warm welcome. Please stand. I've been watching a lot of the Olympics, and every time I see uh, Michael Phelps go for the gold, it reminds me of Joshua. <laughs> After the third time, Serena's like, that's enough, James. Okay, I understand what you're saying, but that's Joshua Smith. <laughs> well, last week we studied um, one of the great hindrances, the one another's that we'll be studying at the upcoming retreat, um, Christ calls us to do all these one another's, the body of believers. And one of the great hindrances, stumbling blocks to Christians obeying these many commands in the New Testament is our fear of man. Intrinsic in our flesh is this fear of one another, irrational fear that constrains us from loving one another. And we need to deal a death blow to this fear of man. If you're ever 
going to grow in truly serving, bearing, caring, encouraging, blessing, and loving one another. And we did a somewhat of a lengthy study last week on, on that great hindrance. Now today, contrast to that, we're going to look at the positive example for us to follow in our endeavor to love one another as a body of Christ. And we find that great example, of course, in the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in John 13. We see here the beautiful mixture of love and humility. And it is here that I find Christ where He is most beautiful, most glorious, most powerful. It is not in the miracles that I find the power of Christ. It is not in His teachings that I discover His beauty or His glory. But in John 13, I see the width of His humility and love. The height of humility and love is found on the cross of Christ. Nothing comes close to that. The height and the depth of Christ's humility and love is found when He, on our behalf, gives Himself as a sacrifice for our sins, that we might be righteous in Him. But the width of His love, the width of His humility, the extent of it is found on His knees with a slave's apron tied around His waist, washing the feet of dirty sinners. We find Christ's humility began long before the creation of the world. His humility did not start with His incarnation, nor His beginnings of His ministry. Before time began, our Lord Jesus promised with the Father to set aside His divine rights. His divine authority that was that were rightfully His. He agreed to humble Himself by taking on human flesh that He might be the ransom for the elect. Philippians 2, 6 and 8 describe when humility began, when Christ humbled Himself. It was before we were even born, we were even created, before there was anything in the, in the universe, Christ humbled himself, Philippians 2, 6, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It was accomplished 2,000 years ago, but it was promised in ages past, before time began. So during his ministry, we see beautiful glimpses, insights into his heart, into his humble character by his teachings and by his deeds. He was often called by his enemies, Luke 7.34, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He was comfortable with sinners and he loved them. We see his extent of his love and compassion and just how he associated with the social outcasts. The lowest rung of the ladder were close friends of his. We see his compassion and love in Matthew 8, 2 and 3. When a man covered with leprosy came and knelt before him and asked, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You are able. And what did our Lord do? He didn't heal him from a distance. 
he drew near, laid his hands on him. For the first time in, in many years, maybe decades, that this man has felt the human touch, touch him, reached out and touched him and healed him. We can go on and on about examples of Christ's humility during his incarnational ministry. But we need to go to John 13 because we see the extent of Christ's humility and love towards sinners. We enter now here in this section of the gospel what many believers in each age have regarded as one of the most precious portions of the scriptures. One of the most blessed passages in all the word of God. All of us need to pay special attention to John 13 but doubly so for anyone in a position of authority or leadership. Special call goes out in John 13 towards men, towards husbands, towards fathers, towards leaders, pastors, elders, shepherds. For those in any kind of position of leadership and authority, John 13 must be in our hearts. We need to bathe our minds with this passage. For this is the example for us to consider if we want to be shepherds according to God's own heart. If we want to be leaders that bring glory to the Father, that please the Father. That if you want to in any way exemplify and model Christ to people under us, under our care, we must understand John 13. A brief background before we jump in to this uh, text. John 1 through 12 is Christ's private ministry. Huge transition. Starting with John 13, he ends his public ministry. Did I say that right? 1 through 12 is public ministry. And 13 through 17 is the Lord's private ministry. 1 through 12, he belongs to the masses. He belongs to the world. Anyone who came, Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, and women, he freely liberally, generously proclaim the truth and minister to them. But starting at this point, there's a huge change and he directs his attention solely on the 12 disciples and he ministers to them. John 13 does, washes their feet, institutes the Lord's Supper. He, upper room discourse, 14 through 16, where he sets them aside and he huddles around them, and he gives them final encouragements, exhortations, instructions, and commands because the cross is in the horizon. And then John 17, the high priestly prayer, he prays for them. And that's it. Goes to Gethsemane, prays for himself. He is arrested, charged, goes to the cross where he will die. This is... Thursday evening, day eve before the crucifixion. It is their final meal together. And here is the scene. Our Lord and the disciples have come from Bethany. Their feet are dirty because they are wearing sandals all day long. It was customary, therefore, to have their feet washed by servants. Especially so because... Dinner was eaten not at a sitting table that is familiar to us. But dinner was eaten at a lower table surrounded by cushions. 
And they would eat together in a reclining cross-leg position. So in that intimate setting, it was very important that their feet be clean. The washing of feet was a very menial task performed by the lowest slave. right? The lowest guy in the totem pole. The newest guy, the lowest uh, pay scale guy was the one responsible to wash feet. If you're a middle level slave, you don't have to wash feet. High level slave, it was the lowest guy. It was shunned by everyone because feet at that time, because their sandals were just not just dirty, but they were considered in their culture to be um, offensive. Something that was distasteful, that was repugnant um, in, their, in, their, in their culture, in their context. Uh, that, that is why if you go to the Middle East and you, you go to someone's home, you never cross your feet and show the bottom of your sole of your feet to your guests. That is a way of offending them. When they toppled Saddam Hussein's uh, statues in, in Iraq, citizens that have been oppressed for years, how did they show their disdain for this man? They took their shoes off and hid his the face of his statue with the soles of their feet. And that's the worst way to show their offense. That was in their culture, cursing him. Because it was, that, that's their culture, that's their context. So, it was a sh- most shunned task. It gives us insight to John the Baptist's response when he saw Jesus Christ. He's one, I'm unworthy to untie his sandals. I mean, the Lord, He is God, He is the Lamb of God, He's the Savior, and I am the last in line of the prophets, and the spirit of Elijah, and yet Christ, I am unworthy to untie and tie His shoelaces. So here they are, they are ready to eat their meal. No servant was there to wash their feet. So they were kind of um, eyeing each other. They're kind of jawing each other, kind of giving each other the elbow and uh, kind of deciding who should be the one to take on this lowly task. Luke 22 gives us an insight of what was in their hearts just prior to this meal. In Luke 22, we find that there was a great dispute about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of Jesus. They were all vying for the chief of staff position. So they were coming to the dinner together, and maybe there might have been a mad rush towards our Lord's right side. And maybe a, a, you know, a little bit of a dispute and a, a physical fight over who was sitting on the Lord's left. And then who would be second on either side and third and so forth. They were all vying for the most important seat next to Christ. I can see our Lord quietly observing their dispute, knows their hearts, know how they're observing how they're wrangling for their positions of honor. And then suddenly they realize the Lord's not seated. They look across and he's putting a towel around his waist. He's filled a basin full of water and he's approaching them as a servant would. As a slave would. Now John was written um, many years after this event. 
and inspired by the Holy Spirit, He gives us a revelation, apocalypse, unveiling of the mind of Christ when He did this. Through the Holy Spirit, we discover our Lord wasn't doing like grumbling heart. Like these guys, man, they're they're just so selfish. Man, they're so prideful. He wasn't like, I'm hungry. I don't care who washes feet. I'm going to do it just so I can eat and fill, fill my hunger, right? Satisfy my hunger. It was not of a grumbling, prideful, angry heart uh, that he was doing this. But inspired by the Holy Spirit is an unveiling of the mind of Christ. And we discover our Lord's mindset here. Three points here about our Lord's mindset behind his service. Verse 1. He knew it was time to go back to the Father. He knew this was the end. His hour of glory was near. His time for earthly ministry was almost over. So understanding that it was the end, he wanted to impart this last sermon, visual sermon, to his followers, knowing that it was the end. Secondly, verse 3 Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into His hands. Knew that He was given all authority. It was with the full understanding of His dignity and elevation of character and position that He condescended to wash their feet. The Apostle here reveals that our Lord was fully aware that the Father had given Him all things, all authority, all power all dignity, all majesty in His personhood and in His office, and yet He condescended to perform the most menial task of being a servant. This makes His humility the most striking and remarkable because the Lord was not just the head of this table, He was the head of every table in the whole world throughout all history. He sits at the throne of God as the rightful king and ruler over the earth. He knew that, that that authority has been given to him. And with that knowledge, what does he do? He washed their feet. And then second part of verse 1, our Lord's mindset was having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. So the motivating, what was driving our Lord to do this, was to show and demonstrate His love for the disciples. These weren't just co-laborers. They weren't just disciples. They weren't just men that He did ministry with. He loved them individually with it from His heart. And He wanted to somehow demonstrate His love for them. And He thought through, how can I show my personal love to these men? In their culture, was washing feet. Right. See, in our culture, you know, if I were to, I want to show my, I want to demonstrate my love for Cornerstone and I went to wash your feet, you'd be like, what are you doing? That's kind of, I took a shower today. You know, <laughs> I wear socks. I'm okay, Pastor. Right? It's kinda, I'm ticklish. Don't do this. Like, it would be a weird way, you know, for us, for me to do that. It's like, holy kids, it'd be a weird way for me, <laughs> Christ like love, to kiss, you know, brothers and sisters here. I mean, just, Right? In our context, it's different. In their context, so we need to figure out how do we show love for one another? How do we demonstrate that love to one another? But in their culture, it was washing feet. And he wanted to uh, demonstrate that. It wasn't enough that he, that he felt it, that he had it in his mind. 
but he wanted to express it. This is his last visual sermon. With that mindset, verse 4, he rose from the dinner table. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around the waist, poured water into a basin, basin, and began to wash disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The details of the action are pictured one by one. The scene had left an indelible impression on the mind of this apostle who was sitting right next to Jesus. And therefore, his recording of it is very graphic. It is seared into his memory banks. John intends that the reader's heart will linger in these two verses for for an extended period of time. Our Lord here is living out what He taught. You want to be great. John 20, 28. You must be a servant. Son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Based upon this, William Barclay wrote, The world may assess a man's greatness, but the number of people whom he controls, or by his intellectual standing, or his academic eminence, or by the number of committees of which he's a member, or by the size of his bank account, or the material possessions which he has amassed. But in the assessment of Jesus Christ, these things are irrelevant. In our Lord's eyes, you want to be great. It's by being a servant, being humble, ministering to one another, out of grace, undeservedly ministering to them. He washed several feet. Verse 6, he comes to Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Honest question. Perhaps a sincere question. The words are very um, emphatic. Lord, you wash my feet? This is the same Peter in Luke 5. Peter said, Lord, away from me. I'm a sinful man. Went to the Holy Spirit. His heart was regenerated and eyes opened. He saw the glory of Christ. His response to Christ's presence was, Lord, you need to go away because I'm a sinner and I can't be in your presence. So with that mindset, perhaps Peter says, Lord, you're curious. I'm matetes, I'm disciple. You wash my feet? Talk about a role reversal. Lord answered in verse 7, What I am doing now, you do not understand, but afterward you will understand and Peter, oh, he should just stop right here. Like Peter, he just always says one sentence too many, right? right? Some of us have that problem. I have that problem sometimes. Man, I should have stopped right there. It's been all good. I have to just take it too far. Peter has to say, verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. And that humility was, turns to false humility. That humility turns to pride. He's saying, I am so humble. I am so meek and lowly. I will not allow you to serve me. I will dictate to you, Lord, how you will serve me. 
how I should be appreciated, how I should be honored, how I should be served. You will not tell me. I will tell you how you can serve me. And this is a wrong way, an inappropriate way for you to minister to me. I will have none of it. So, in, in our, especially the Asian culture, we're well aware of like false humility, right? We're well aware. I, you know, I don't know, our moms cook a meal. That was great, mom. It's oh, it was nothing, you know. I put it together in a few minutes, knowing that's her best dish. She slaved away forever hours. But it's, oh, it's nothing. I just, you know, wow, I was a, you did really well on that test. Oh, you know, I just got lucky. Well, you know, I just lucked out when you're studying like crazy. And, and right? that's, what, that's what Peter's doing here. Right? Pride, out of control, pride. Revealed in a subtle way in false humility. He rejects our Lord's action as though he's undeserving. Yes, he's undeserving. And that's the whole point, right? The gospel, we are, that's grace. We're undeserving of our salvation. We're undeserving of sanctification. We're undeserving of anything that God has given to us. And to reject Christ and the expression of that grace to us is uh it's not humility it's pride to reject that grace in principle is to reject all grace completely period so our lord you know he he sees right through that he's not like a fear of man he's not like you know he's not like doubting himself he's not concerned about what peter's thinking he says verse 8 part b if you if i do not wash you you have no share with me he, he calls Peter out. You don't want this little grace I'm giving to you? It's undeserved, right? It's, it's free grace. You don't want this? Then you don't get anything. We have no relationship. We have no partnership. We have no koinonia. We have no fellowship. You have no part with me. You're not my disciple. I am not your Lord. You call me Lord, I have none of it. That's so how Peter is in trouble, Right? Peter's like, oh man, okay, so recovery mode, right? Recovery mode, okay then, right? Wash my head and wash my hands. Wash every part of my body, right? You know, and Christ responds, um, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. He is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. He's talking about Judas but he's not only teaching, showing them his love for them, but he's teaching a spiritual truth. That for those who are saved, we are saved. But we daily need cleansing because we live in this world and we live with a fallen flesh and we are tainted by sin every single day. The guilt and shame right, clings to us on our feet because that's where we tread. So daily we need washing by the word of God, washing by the gospel, being renewed to have our feet washed, to cleanse our guilt, our shame, our sins away. Right? But we don't have to be saved again. We are cleansed once for all as Christians. But we need that daily cleansing by the word of God. That is what our Lord is teaching. After he had finished he resumed his place, verse 12. 
Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. The Lord here employs an ar- a, a, the greater to lesser logic here. He is the sovereign Lord, God in flesh, supreme leader. If if the Lord purposely humbled Himself to wash the feet of His disciples, rather than arguing with each other about who is greater, who should be prominent, who should get more honor or glory, rather than striving to possess their rights, higher ranking they should have a dispute on how much they ought to love one another humble themselves and humble oneself and love one another that's the example that Christ set for them and has set for us that we might do them verse 17 if you know these things blessed are you if you do them This is where knowledge puffs up and love builds up. I doubt there is a person here that did not know this. We're supposed to love one another? Oh, man, nobody told me. Man, it's like 10 years as a Christian. That's why everyone's been angry with me for the last 10 years. Because people avoid me all over the place because you know what? I had no idea. You know, I missed page 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Right? I missed the Bible. I, I had no idea. I doubt anyone has that kind of response. All of us here, man, I learned that when I was like Sunday school. I learned that in Pebbles Ministry, you know. I learned that, right? We know this, but our, our Lord modeled it. He didn't just teach it. He modeled it. Why? Because blessed are you if you do them. If you... Love one another. You humble yourself and you practice love for one another. That's why 1 John 3.18, Dear children, let us not love with word or speech, but with actions and in truth. With actions and in truth. So we see fear of man hinders us to love one another. Love one another Pride hinders us. What's holding us back? It's pride. Humility allows us not just to love in word and speech, but to love in deed and in truth. And the ultimate motivation is verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So if you love a Christian, you're loving Christ. You're loving Christ, loving the Father. If you do not show love to Christians, you're not showing love to Christ. You're not showing love to the Father. If you say you love Christ, but you don't love the church, you don't love Christians, I'm sorry. The truth is, you don't love Christ. You're rejecting Christ. You're rejecting the God. Verse 20. If you love Christ, you will love Christ's body, Christ's church, Christians, were saved by him and God's children. And the opposite is true. If you do not love Christians, 
The truth is, you do not love Christ. Not in your not. If you're not living out, demonstrating, practicing love for Christians, you're not loving Christ. You're not loving God. So Matthew 25, 31 through 40, that whole sheep and the goats illustration, and the sheep. Christ said, when I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was hungry, you gave me food, right? When I was without clothes, you gave me clothes. When I was in prison, you visited me. And the sheep say, Lord, when? When did we give you water? When did we give you food? I'll remember, you know, buying you food, Jesus, right? I remember, I will remember that if I visited you in jail. And Jesus said, whatsoever you did for the least of my brethren, you did it unto me. This is not social gospel. Do good to all people, you're doing it to Christ. It's Christ's brethren, fellow siblings of God. Whatsoever you do to Christians, you do them unto me. It's not social gospel, it's Christ's gospel. So when we give water to a Christian, we're giving water to Christ. When we give bread to a Christian, visit a Christian in jail. Serve a Christian, we're loving serving Christ. That's why Keith Green said, and you know, I love that refrain in that song. Jesus says, if you love someone in his name, you are loving him. Jesus says, if you touch someone in his name, you are touching him. Jesus says, Jesus says, Jesus says, it's him. So, that is um, the prep work for the retreat. That is the prep work. Let us deal a death blow to fear of man so we can practice the one another's. And then when we sense pride welling up inside of us, let us remember the example of Jesus on his feet, washing the, on his knees, washing dirty feet of sinners. And may that cause, call us to humble ourselves and practically love one another. Um, we have some time here, so I can kind of do a little bit of shepherding uh, with the time we have left. We talked about last week how the opposite of fear of man is not love. I mean, it's not courage, right? The opposite of fear of man is love, right? You know, a mom afraid of the water, but a mom sees her child drowning, she jumps in with both feet. What compelled her to jump into a rushing river? It's not her courage. It's love for her child. Right. So the opposite of fear of man is love. What is the opposite of loving one another? Right. The opposite is selfishness. Right. Self-centeredness. Self-love. Right. That is the great hindrance that wars in our hearts that keeps us from loving one another from the heart. Great many of us, we're not demon-possessed. We are self-possessed, right? It's like we, we have this mindset, the earth revolves around us, right? It's like everybody, you know, is there for me, right? We are our own greatest fans. We are obsessed with ourselves. 1 Corinthians 13, one of the key qualities of love is that it is not selfish. So if you're a selfish, self-centered, 
self-focused, self-obsessed, obsessed. Loving one another is difficult, if not impossible. A.B. Simpson wrote, Selfishness is high treason against the throne of God. It sets up self instead of God. The one you seek to please, the one whose will you uniformly obey, the one whose interests you supremely seek, that is your God. And therefore, selfishness is the worship of man, worse than the worship of humanity. It is self-worship. It is blasphemy. It is rebellion against the throne of God. And it will bring upon your head the damning curse of a God of love. Pastor Richard Baxter wrote, The principal part of selfishness consists in an inordinate self-love. This is a corruption so deep in the heart of man that it may be called his very natural inclination. This is original sin in itself. This is the heart of original sin. This speaks what man by nature is, an inordinate self-lover. In this, all other vice in the world is virtually contained. Selfishness. Every man is an idolater. Every now selfish, ungodly men do all of them rob God. They call Him God, but will have Him for their end, their portion, their happiness. Therefore, self is the false, false Christ and false Savior of the world. Every man and woman on earth that take for themselves as true Christians, yet do not deny themselves, deny who they are, deny self-worship for the sake of Christ, and the hope of everlasting glory are mere self-deceivers and no true Christians at all. It is impossible for that man to be Christ's disciple who loves his life more than Christ. More than Christ. This is found not just in Christians, but even among Christian leaders. No one is, a, is a free from this base sin in our flesh. I read this letter a long time ago, and it's an old letter. One church leader wrote to another. It rebuked me greatly. I want to share it with you. Uh, it was written in the 1800s. Um, and so, just like the example of Christ, is doubly important for leaders. All the men, husbands, fathers, any kind of spiritual leadership, flock shepherds, pastors, elders. And listen to this. The letter reads, Two years ago, I saw that you and your wife were both very selfish, grasping persons. Your own selfish interests were dearer to you than souls for whom Christ died. One of the greatest curses of your life, brother, has been your supreme selfishness. You have been figuring out for your own advantage. You both have made yourselves a center of sympathy and attention. When you go to a place and enter a family, you throw your whole weight upon them, let them cook for you, wait upon you, and neither of you seeks to do as much work as you make. 
The family may be toiling hard, bearing their own burdens and yours, but you are both so selfish that you cannot see that they are worn and that you are both physically better able than they to perform the labor which they do for you. Brother, you are too indolent to please God. Your sensitiveness and jealousy have weakened the hands of those who would set things in order and bring up the work. You are naturally stubborn, jealous, and proud. The natural fruits of selfishness. God has been dishonored by your littleness. Among all Christians, those in leadership ought to destroy the self-centeredness, not just for our sakes, for those, those whom we are serving through leadership and God that we model to those that are under us. In closing, a few specific symptoms of selfishness that we might help see ourselves um, really briefly, and we'll close our time. A few symptoms of selfishness. Anything that happens in your life, family, or work, or church, is your blink response, how does it affect me? Your first thought is, okay, so how is it going to influence my agenda, my time, my schedule, my plans? Your concern is not for others, for the one directly impacted, but your heart concern is for yourself. So can I still get what I want? Will I be still be able to do what I want to do? Does this affect my plans? Right. That's your heart response to changes in life. That's a growing selfishness in your heart. Do you understand the purpose of conversation? Right? Do you understand the purpose of talking? The Bible tells us we talk to glorify God and to encourage others. But in your, conver- in your talking, conversation, is your agenda just yourself? Right. You don't listen to others. You just dominate the conversation. Wherever the conversation goes, you bring it back to yourself. Right? Wherever the conversation leads, you turn it around back to you. Because whatever people are talking about, you have to be in the middle of it, the center of it. You interrupt others when they're talking. You don't have a discerning switch in your mind. You're just, just you know, free-flowing thought. And you're discouraging people, hurting people, inconsiderate to people left and right. And you don't care because it's about you venting. You letting out what you want to let out. It's not about others. Right. How about in generosity? Are you miserly, stingy, parsimonious to others? while you are generous to yourself. You are very gracious to yourself, but you are stingy toward your wife, toward your children, toward your friends. You are calculating everything, but toward yourself, oh, you believe in grace. You You believe in generosity, right? Free grace. God has been generous to us, I want to be generous to myself, right? It should be the opposite, but is that your heart? I know I struggle with that. Right. Next one I struggle with a lot is um, overly sensitive about yourself while you are insensitive to others. 
So I think it's okay if you're sensitive about yourself and you're sensitive towards others as well, right? You're easily offended, easily hurt, easily like, you know, angered. And then you're also sensitive about other people's feelings too. Then, okay, at least you're consistent. <laughs> but you're very hypersensitive about yourself. And every word, you know, oh man, you hurt me. Every act, oh man, I couldn't sleep. And yet, at the same time, you're the one like dishing it out and being rude and stepping on people's toes everywhere. Right? And we are like, I'm like that on the basketball court, right? Uh, I confess, brothers, right? <laughs> Every little thing touches me, that's a foul, right? Man, you hurt me when I, when I foul someone. Like, what foul? Why are you so sensitive, brother? What street ball? This is not like NBA, right? I'm growing in that area. Let's all grow together, right? These are all just a small, a short list of uh, selfishness in all its forms. Right? We need to take one look at all these forms of sin, of selfishness coming out. But the cure is the gospel. How are we cured from the selfishness? It is not try harder. It's not, you know, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to discipline myself. I'm going to force myself to be selfless. No. That's going back to legalism. That's going back to law of works. There is no hope there. There's no, that's more bondage, more slavery, because you're focused on yourself. How am I going to overcome my selfishness? It is a trap. Right? It is a snare. It's a trick. Right? We're going back to Egypt. It's a wrong map. The way of liberty from ourselves is not ourselves. It's but what Christ did on the cross. It's the gospel. He set us free. He liberated us from, from us. How? So that we could focus on Christ. We can look at what He did, His glory, His beauty, His majesty, and forget about us. C.S. Lewis said, humility is self-forgetfulness. Right? What is humility? You forget about yourself. You're not thinking about yourself. Your self is not in your memory bank. Your memory bank is filled with Christ and the gospel and the cross. So the way out from this bondage of slavery, of selfishness, is to look at John 13. And to meditate upon John 13, John 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, New Testament, and see what Christ did, and we look and we change. We admire our hearts get broken. Right? We confess, we praise Christ, we were amazed at God's free grace, and the chains are weakened, and they fall apart, and we're set free. The way out brothers and sisters, is the cross of Christ. And there's no other hope. May God grant us freedom against fear of man, freedom against selfishness, so that at the retreat, we're ready. All of us, like one man, we're ready to learn these one another's so that we can uh, obey these commands so that the gospel might not just be heard in our midst, but people will see it in our midst. Let's pray. Lord, we bless your name. We thank you for the gospel of Christ. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the example that you have set for us in your service and in your death that you compelled by 
your love for the Father laid aside your rights to be our substitute, to be the Lamb of God who took away our sins. So Lord, as your faithful followers, as your disciples, may we fight our flesh, fight our self-love, lay aside all our rights, deny ourselves, and put you at your rightful place, reigning supreme in our hearts. And because we've been received so much love and grace, bountifully in Christ, maybe out of overflow, love one another, so that, as always, your gospel might go forth, gospel of your glory, gospel of your Son might go forth, and many will be saved. Thank you, and in your name we pray.